The reference about athletes was my philosophy of physical fitness is the more you use your body, the faster it wears out. So that's why Rick included me. As we come to the word of God together, we're going to look at Judges chapter 16. So Joshua judges Ruth there at the beginning of the Old Testament. Before I read, I want to to give the context of this. There are four chapters in the scripture devoted to Samson, which in itself tells us something and puzzles us at first glance. At the time that, that Samson was a judge, Israel had been conquered and was being ruled by the Philistines. The Philistines were a coastal people on that eastern coast to the Mediterranean, uh, and they had their, their domain had seeped up into mountainous Israel, and Samson and his family were right on the edge, on the border between the two. Um, the, their rule was quite benign. They took care of everything, and there wasn't much room for complaint. Now, Samson is one of at least three or four people in the Bible that I've come up with, and if you come up with somebody else, let me know, whose birth was announced by an angel. John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus himself, of course, uh, Isaac, and Samson. Now, there's probably some others I'm forgetting, but um, that's pretty astounding, especially as we look at Samson. Uh, He had been designated to be a Nazarite, from conception. Now, a Nazarite was a voluntary vow normally that one would take to be especially dedicated to God. And the symbols of that dedication, usually it's for a short period of time, not for one's whole life, like with Samson. And the two markers were, one, they would abstain from wine or any other kind of alcoholic beverages. And second, they would not cut their hair. And that was that singled them out as a Nazarite. When their vow was done, then then the conditions were ended as well. Now, as we look at at Samson, though, we see somebody who loves women. Delilah, that I'm going to read about in a minute, is only is the number three that is mentioned in the scripture. Although, as we read about him, we suspect there were more and we can almost uh, be assured of that. Also, this context of the four chapters before chapter 16 indicates that Samson's not a typical judge. The judges that we're used to hearing about, like Gideon or Jephthah or Barak or the others, they led whole armies against the enemies of God's people. They would rally the tribes, uh, the 12 tribes, and, and go after the enemies of God. Samson's not that way at all. He is an individual who stirs up the Philistines in some ways that his own people did not like. He kept angering the conquerors of God's people and angering God's people too because of that. So with that context, now let's look at chapter 16. I will begin reading the Word of God at verse 4. After this, Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, 
and see whether his, where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that I have not that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with a web and fasten it tight with a pen, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with a pen and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, how can you say you lo- that I love you when, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God for my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself, but... He did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles 
and he ground at the mill and the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on Samson on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Let's pray. Our God, we come to you marveling at your work among men. That you are the God who made us and who came for us and loves us as you do. Yet we know that we do not see you as we ought. We do not understand all that we ought to know. And we certainly don't obey you as we ought. So please, as we come to your word, help us to hear you and see you in all your glory. That you might be honored in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. What is with Samson? Right? What, what kind of guy is this? My goodness, how foolish. He's got four chapters, though, devoted to him. We're tempted just to say, he's a fool, he's a jerk. Good grief. How self-destructive can you be? How dishonoring to God. Yet, God gives four chapters to this judge in his word. And then even more amazing is Hebrews chapter 11. There in Hebrews 11 is this incredible role of the men and women of faith who have loved and trusted God 
And they're listed right out there. Listen to this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. He's listed with all of them. How can such a man be there? As we look at this passage, we begin to see why. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Because the first thing we see is the exceeding deceitfulness of sin. Now, a Nazarite from conception announced by an angel. And at the end of chapter 13, God tells us, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. But we go to the next verse, 14.1, and see, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then again at 16, 16.1, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. Samson had a problem with what he saw. Samson 16.4 After this, he loved the woman in the valley of Sorak whose name was Delilah. One after another, his eyes are ruling him, his desires, his own passions are ruling over them. It is not an understatement, and I believe it's scriptural to say that Samson's idol was what he saw, what he desired in these women. He idolized them. That's what ruled his life. That's what he served. His own lusts. His own passions. His life became one of serving his idol. Serving his, he was a slave to those desires over and over and over again. His master was not the Lord God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His master was his own sinful, rebellious heart. He was desperately blind to his slavery, to his own passions. That's how he could do what he did. That's how Delilah could twist him around her fingers. That's how he continually gave in to her. How else could he agree to do all this that she asked? She kept asking him over and over again. He was blind long before the Philistines blinded him. We, when we read this story, I don't know about you, but I feel like grabbing him by the lapels and saying, What are you thinking? What are you doing? Knock it off. But that's not what happened. Because here we see in Samson's life, as God would show us too, what Jeremiah said later in, in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately corrupt. 
And then in James chapter 1, reflecting the same notion, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Apostle James knew Samson. That's a perfect description of who he was and what he had become. And we must learn that as well. Samson's life in the Scriptures teach us of the way that sin corrupts our thinking. The way we process that which we bring in through our eyes. That which we think about. That which we bring in not just through our eyes, but all of our senses. The effect of sin on our thinking is the effect of our own rebellious hearts and how we and what it does is it changes the way we see the world because our thinking is corrupted and confused by our own sin. What we have is the filter of our selfish desires. We have a screen of our own idolatries, whatever those might be. And like Samson, we make the bad calls and we do the sinful thing because of that. Think for a minute of pride and anger and how they go together. Perhaps something happens. It's not how you planned it. Wasn't supposed to go that way. Not how you wanted it. Someone did the wrong thing. Someone said the wrong thing and it hurt. It was painful. Or someone insulted you. Like what, like Delilah said in her pride, irony of ironies, in her pride she says, you have mocked me. You have mocked me. Or perhaps simply, someone made your life much, much more difficult. And in your pride and anger, even with the best of intentions, we let loose. Have you ever made a seventh grade girl cry. See, I taught junior high for 20, 25 years. Yep. There I'm standing in the classroom and there's a seventh grade girl after I've just unloaded on her, just weeping. You know, Boy, do I feel great at that moment. As a teacher, there were, as a school teacher, there were way too many instances in my life where a misbehaving child received the brunt of my anger, of my wrath. That girl, rather than the patient, loving correction that she was due at that point, received instead my hurt pride and my anger at her. Did she need my correction? Well, yeah, she was misbehaving. Did she even deserve that correction? Well, of course. Could some of her tears be manipulation? Well, sure. But, and, I will add, did I try to justify my behavior at what had happened? Well, of course I did. I have to protect myself. What she suffered from was my impatience, 
And my earlier failures in that day or in her life to correct her in a timely manner as I ought to have. Sinful thinking is so complicated. It is so corrupt. It is, as Jeremiah tells us, deceitful. We, de- we are deceived all the time about what we think about. Think of your reaction in, in some similar circumstance. Our pride becomes tangled in our desire for justice. They deserve that, or they were wrong and I was right. Pride, anger, seeking the best way to help someone or do something good. I go in there with mixed motives all the time. We find idols to serve. Security, fame, popularity, lust, comfort, escape, wealth, on and on and on we have idols. And we certainly idolize ourselves. You see, the seventh grade girl challenged my idolatry. The idolatry that I was in charge. I was the one. How dare she challenge me, the all-wise upchurch. No. And, and she received the brunt of that. Of all of that. I really did care about her. I really did want the best for her, but look how it came out. So like Samson, we need a gracious Savior. We sure can't earn it. We need, desperately need, a gracious Savior who freely pours out His love and salvation on us. So the first thing to note about this passage is the exceeding deceitfulness of sin, the way it destroys our thinking, the way it corrupts the way we approach the world. Secondly, we we praise God. There's grace here. There's grace in the life of Samson. The Philistines humbled him. Think of the way they humbled him. In his idolatry to his own passions, Samson believed he could handle Delilah. Got it all under control. Surely he knew he couldn't trust her. I mean, after the second time, at least he's starting to doubt it, right? The fourth time it takes and he finally gives in to her, he thought he was in charge. He idolized his own power. His own control. He was the great Samson who had all this strength from God. Just look at my long hair. That'll show you how strong I am. How God's Spirit has worked in me. So he gave in to her pleas. His pride and his lust led to a Philistine victory. They blinded him and enslaved him and mocked him. They made him a clown to entertain them in the temple of their god, Dagon. Look how great Dagon is. He's brought low this Samson who claimed to be the servant of the Lord. Look how puny the God of Israel really is. Samson could go no lower. 
than where he was. Blind, a blind slave to the whims of his masters, but his blindness and his slavery were caused by the idol of his own lust. His enemies won, and he was a blind slave of the Philistines. But here's the grace. Here is why there are four chapters. Here is why he's, he's on that roll in Hebrews 11. Because in his blindness, for the first time, he could see. He saw who he was, and he saw who God is. And he repented. He cries out to God in that prayer at the end of chapter 16. He had repented. Was it a perfect repentance? Of course not. None of our repentance is perfect. Because he wanted vengeance too. Lord, help me vindicate you, but me too. I want vengeance. Well, again, but he. Re- but from what we can tell from the Scripture, that prayer was a genuine prayer of faith, which is why he's on the role of the faithful. God heard him. And in his death, Samson indeed had a gracious Savior. And by God's grace, in our blindness, we see as well. By the work of His Spirit in us, we can see where we fail. Most of us know the story of the slave captain John Newton. John Newton, who was blind to his idols of wealth and fame and power until God opened them. And he cries out to God in that wonderful song, Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. That is what God does. That is his grace. So we bow before such a God. We bow before such a one And there are no room for idols in it, in that bowing. No room for my self-serving pride. Only room for a heart given to Him. It's the way of salvation for us, even as it was for Samson. By God's grace, we who are blind See this Savior who is greater than all our sin. We don't hesitate because He is so great and He is so gracious and He has come. The grace of God poured out on Samson is our grace as well through through the Lord Jesus. But there's even more grace in this passage. The deceitfulness of sin, the grace in his life, And the grace for his people, we also see here. And that's the question. Well, Samson's a judge? What's this? He's he's killed some Philistines. He's had this own personal experience of salvation. And for that, we praise God. And it's a wonderful help to us. But he did something more, God did, through this man, Samson. He, He didn't lead the armies like Gideon did or Barak did. Yet God used him to save his people, Israel, from the Philistines. 
Israel was becoming content with their lot. They were becoming content to be subjects to the Philistines and their gods. They were becoming assimilated into the Philistines that were all around them, into their culture and their way of life. It was becoming such that you couldn't tell the difference between the Philistines and the people of God. We see this when Samson himself sees a Philistine woman and says to his mother and father, get her for me. Get this woman for me. And they give in and do it. They make the the marriage arrangements. That kind of intermarriage was strictly forbidden by the law of God. Yet, that's what was happening. And at another point in Samson's story, uh, the Philistines come to his fellow, to, to the tribe of Judah and say, look, Get this guy for us. He's stirring up trouble. He's, caught, he's killing our people. And, and the Judites say, oh, okay. And so they make a deal with Samson and, and they turn him over to the Philistines, his own people, the people of God. It was as if Israel was being so content with the security and the comfort and the help that the Philistine government was to them. We don't need the Lord. We don't need this God who came to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were idolizing the Philistine security. And later, as we see in the Scripture, this tendency is there, and they actually begin to worship the gods of their foreign conquerors. His people wanted him to quit stirring up trouble. Quit causing a mess for us. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just move on with this? What's this religious fanaticism? What we see with Israel at this point in their history and in many other points in their history is what one writer called the downward bias of the human heart. The downward bias of the human heart. God saved Israel from this downward bias by sovereignly overruling his complacent people through this one sinful man, Samson. He used one sinful man to destroy a generation of leaders in that temple on that day, a generation of Philistines in that collapse. He used this one man to stir up trouble when it needed to be stirred up. Dagon was proved to be no God at all. The God of Israel destroyed him. God used other judges like Gideon and Jephthah with whole armies, but here he just used one man. The sovereign, wonderful work of God in his grace toward his people to preserve them and keep them in this life of this incredibly flawed man, Samson. So the question for us then is, can we trust our God to work in His church, in us, through my confused, rebellious thinking, through my corrupt thoughts, my deceitful thoughts? Can He use me as He's promised in the Scripture, in the lives of my fellow believers? Me 
who is indeed a Samson-like sinner. Can we trust Him to work mightily through the sinful behavior of one another? Our fellow Christians. We are going to sin against each other. Guaranteed. Can we trust God to work through that? Can we trust God to work through the hurt and the pain and the struggles that we have for His own glory and for our good? God is at work in all of us by the power of His Spirit, by our union with His Son, by the mighty work of the Father. We have to remember how irritated the people of Judah were with Samson when we get irritated with each other. What's God stirring up? should probably be our question. What is He doing? We trust in the sovereign good work of God and His church for whom He has promised the gates of hell will not stand against our, the work that He's got us to do. To, can He help us trust Him? Of course. We must trust Him that He will do what it takes to accomplish His good purpose for us, His people. What an encouragement Samson ought to be for us. Because we see in him the deceitfulness of sin, the grace of God, the sovereign good love of God for us, his people, chosen by him. What an encouragement God poured out his grace on such a sinner. What an encouragement that God used him. What an encouragement that he uses us. Us flawed, rebellious hearts and sinful hearts and minds to accomplish his good work. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And surely this is part of that promise. Surely this is what God is about in so many ways. All things work for good because a good God pours out His mercy and grace on blind sinners like you and me. And for that, we praise Him. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we marvel at your grace poured out. Help us never forget it. But help us continually come back to what you have done on that cross. What you have done for us in your love for us. Thank you for giving us life for all eternity. And for putting us on that role of faith in eternity with you. Thank you for that amazing grace. And our God, even as we thank you and praise your name, we ask you to help our brothers and sisters. Strengthen them and help us individually and as your people to love them and give and help and strengthen in this world of darkness. We pray especially for our sister Ann Kovar and the, the death of her mother. Please help her and her family and especially help her father, George, as he lives now without his wife for so many years. 
please provide your peace and your comfort and your strength. And we thank you, too, for the delights and the joys that you bring on our way. We thank especially for Ezekiel, Karen and Bill's new grandson, and for the delight that he is to them and their family. Save that little boy for yourself. Bring him to you. And for the delight that Colin is to me and Jerry, for this new grandson born yesterday, thank you so much for him. Bless and keep him and save him mightily. And help all of our parents as they nurture and strengthen their children to give you the glory in it all and the wisdom and the grace that they need to do this difficult task. Thank you, dear Christ, that we can always call upon you because you lived among us and you are indeed at the Father's right hand interceding on our behalf. We marvel, we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. And now receive this as the benediction of our Lord. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.